Welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by arguably the greatest triathlon coach the world has ever seen, Brett Sutton. Brett's coaching resume includes Daniela Reef, who is a four-times Ironman world champion, five-times Ironman 70.3 world champion, and arguably the most dominant triathlete the world has ever seen. Nicholas Spirig, who is an Olympic gold and silver medalist, which I think everyone in the sport agrees is the hardest race to perform well at, let alone win it and then come back four years later and finish second. Chrissy Wallenting, who won the Ironman World Championships in Kona two times while with Brett, and Emma Snosel, now Frodino, an Olympic gold medalist, Commonwealth Games gold medalist and world champion. Outside of this, Brett's also had other athletes podium at the Olympics, win world championships and be ranked number one in the world while being coached by him. I've been involved in the sport for a long time and something you always hear about Brett is how the foundation of his coaching is built on good old-fashioned hard work and creating tough athletes. Brett, thanks for joining me. Do you think we can start by talking a little bit about your coaching philosophy? Well, what I can do first is to clarify it because, yes, everybody thinks that we work crazy hard. Now, the thing is every athlete that turns up here, both long course and short course, after four weeks, usually always comes to me and say, I don't understand, I'm doing less work than I did before. Uh, that's their biggest problem. And uh, the difference is, is how we do the work. And that's the key. You know, we look at the work as a, a holistic thing. So it's not just a swim, then a bike, then a run. We, we, we put a lot of attention on how we mix the, the training to get the magic potion, if you like. And so... Yes, we work hard, no doubt about that. We work intensely. However, volume-wise, Danny used to do less than every other Ironman uh, that I know of and she knows of, and uh, and Nicola works a lot shorter than a lot of the other girls. So, um, and it's not just those two. We've been doing it, you know, as you know, for 30 years, and uh, for me, People call themselves scientists and they call themselves this and that. I give myself a label as an experimentalist. And we've always, even to this day, we've always got experiments going on within our group. If someone's an extremely poor swimmer and, you know, they understand they're a poor swimmer, we'll, we'll do experiments to try to find what might make them a little faster. Uh, do I tell them they're going to be a great swimmer? Uh, you only have to talk to some of our athletes. We pretty straight here. Uh, I don't think political correctness is a part of our regime. Uh, they get told the truth, and it's the same with runners. You know, I just come from a run session with someone who was an extremely slow runner, and all of a sudden now we're reading little articles that, oh, the talented runner. Uh, that comes from experimenting, not reading a book and not, you know, putting the science on them, which, you know, is a bit of a, uh, a misnomer anyway, if you want to explain what science is. I'm most likely the only scientist in triathlon at the present moment, but they don't understand that because they've been totally educated to be educated and not intelligent. So, you know, we stick to common sense. That's our bottom line. And uh, we take our days, our periodization, instead of six months, 12 months, this. We have the big picture, but we never look further than in a three-day bracket. And those three days is... What we did yesterday dictates what we did today and what we did today dictates what we're going to do tomorrow. Now, as you can imagine, it's very, very hard now to fight against the mainstream establishment with athletes' heads. So if they're having a bit of a tough time, they always look outside the box. The grass is greener on the other side. And, um, you know, so it's a temptation. And it doesn't matter how long you've been with me, it's still a temptation. And I suppose the only one that two that haven't been really tempted is Nicola, who's, I think, coming up to year 17, and uh, Ronaldo's year 22. Um, and, you know, they've, they've reaped the rewards, I suppose, of keeping their head into, the, into our system. And uh, to this day, they're both still top five in the world in their, in their class. So that, that's the key, what people don't understand, uh, I have people right through the world trying to get all the sessions. What's the sessions? What's the sessions? And I post them because the sessions mean nothing without the structure behind it and the reason where you put the session, why you put the session, who you give the session to. And I think that's what basically sets me apart from the others. We do that individually and um, we've had good success with it. 
So say all your your really good pro guys, like your Nicholas and your Daniela Reefs and your Emma Snowsells, um, uh, with their yeah. program, are you are you sort of just sending it every day based on that, to, you know, what we did yesterday, what we do today, what we do tomorrow? Or do you still sort of go, okay, this is what your next week or next fortnight or next month looks like, and then you just adjust on the fly based on yesterday, today, and tomorrow? Well, Jack, the girls would be upset with me, but I think I talk to Nicola Spirit when she's not in camp 10 times a day. So I, I, I do it session by session, and, then, and the main sets within the session basically comes from, you know, what the feedback I get. Uh, Danny used to be the same. You know, the communication is the most important thing. So when we're on deck, I'll have a structure for the day because I don't believe in two sessions a day or three sessions a day. I look at the day as a whole day. What am I trying to achieve today? What, what's our goal for today? What are we looking for? And then we we fashion the sessions around it. And uh, so basically the communication is the most important thing. Yeah, but, well, in those cases, and they're extreme, get, don't get me wrong, I've got others that contact me twice a day. I've got other pros that contact me once a day. I've got people that want to contact me once a week and I basically say to them they're better off going somewhere else because this system won't suit you. So basically we're trying to be as individualistic as we can uh, when we're in a group, for instance, if we've got, uh, well, the other day we had nine people in the group, we had five swim sessions fashioned around basically what's best for them at that particular time. So, yes, we don't, we don't get to the one-week page or the one-month page or the one-year you know year page. It's basically uh, this is what we're doing today and let's do the first session and then we might, you know, depending on how they looked in the morning, we will adjust the next session. So does that mean it's like really hard verging on almost impossible for you to coach someone if you don't at least occasionally see them in person? Well, the beautiful thing or the one thing about IT now is I get to see them more now from a technical point of view. So um, we've had very good success with people that I haven't seen in flesh more than two weeks twice a year. But we, we can then use the IT with the, the videos to, to, to look at their swim sets, to look at their swim stroke, I should say, or their run technique. Um, again, we have very specific ideas about what triathlon is. So we don't run the traditional way. We don't swim the traditional technical way. We don't bike the traditional technical way. And so that's where you'll find so many people that uh, when you talk outside the, the thing about, oh, he does things crazy and he's this and that, I believe I'm the only triathlon coach that actually is the triathlon coach. Uh, we started our own syllabus so I could try to pass it on to other coaches because I don't think, you know, people look at triathlon as triathlon and, and, and that's where I think I get an advantage over everybody else. I come from a... A, a famous swimming family in Australia and we've had super success with swimming. Um, and basically the first two years when I come into the triathlon, I, I readjusted my whole thinking because I was of the same elk. I'll read this up on running. I'll read this up on biking. Okay, I know the swimming backwards. Um, and then I found that, um, you know, I wasn't having any effect on people improving in their bike. Uh, their swim become really, really good, but then their run was poor, you know. And so basically I took two steps back and two to the side and said, well, what, what's the sport? How do we, how do we integrate and compromise the techniques to uh, maximise the triathlon result? And so that's where most of the mythic stuff is and, you know, people sort of say, oh, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that. And, he doesn't know swimming. And, you know, I had 24 Olympians before I knew what triathlon was. Um, so I laugh when they say, oh, look, he doesn't understand swimming. Um, but anyway, I'm just trying to give you the background because you might have one or two coaches there that are listening to you and want to understand the difference between the, the highest level and, and, and just being a, a fairly average coach and trying to do their best. There's a, there's a big difference. I'm fascinated on that because um, I, I think that is the way you're talked about in triathlon circles, that you, you do things a little bit 
outside of the normal. And, and you just said then that you, you know, we don't swim, ride and run the traditional way and people think the way you do it is crazy. So I was just going to ask like more specifically, what is the way you do it? Well, again, we go back to the, the logistics of common sense. Like if we're going to be riding, say we're doing an Ironman, so we're going to be riding for five hours. Well, we don't use our arms there. We use our legs. We're going to run a marathon. Well, we don't use our arms. So why in swimming is we all backed up with the uh, working our legs? And, you know, 6 B kickers everywhere and then they complain they on the bike their legs get tight. So I try to maximise the arms in the swim. We try to keep the heart rate as low as possible on the bike because we're going to be going for eight hours or, you know, in, in the boys' case, nine hours in the girls' case. So we develop our techniques and our strategies for training around those parameters. Um, I'm not looking at what the best swimmers do. I couldn't care less what Michael Phelps does. Um, you know, I, depending on the people, as you must understand, some individuals you can't change because that's the way they've been, their motor skills have been developed. So we don't try to change the ones that are good swimmers. They come to me with six speed kick. Well, we stay that way. Uh, however, what we do try to do is um, those that we can manipulate, um, we try to get them to be armed dominant swimmers. Uh, then on the bike, we, we look at what the bike's about. I think everybody sort of has more or less copied our technique over the 25 years of how I used to set guys up on the bike 30 years ago. It's now the norm where before it used to be that, oh, my God, that's ridiculous. Um, but people, and even now with Danny, you see the girls that are starting to go better on the bike have sort of taken her technique to heart and, and finding success with it. It's it's not rocket science. It's, it's basically... Uh, you know, how are you going to be on your toes on the run and chest forward and uh, lift the knees and you're running a marathon after you've been going for six hours? So, you know, that's where you get the, uh, if you've asked around, they call it the Sato Shuffle. Um, I just take into consideration they're going to be tired. So, you know, I don't know any athlete that's on their toes at the 35K mark of a, uh, of a uh, marathon after an Ironman. I have all the photos to prove it, but the more you show the photos, the more everybody sort of shuns you and puts you in the corner and so, well, we'll just ignore him and, you know, when he dies, so we won't have a problem. We'll, we'll have our good technique and everything's sweet, but uh, unfortunately I'm still here. I'm noticing more and more with the sport of triathlon is we have a new wave of coaches who get into the sport, enjoy it and think, oh, I'll start coaching it and then overcomplicate their approach a bit and make it a bit confusing and even sometimes come across like what they're doing is the secret. Whereas you have more coaching experience than anyone I've ever heard of in the sport. And like I said in the introduction, a resume that no one can really compete with, but you seem like a, a proponent of simplifying things and, and not overcomplicating the sport, not bringing in way too much science, not having like an over-reliance on new technology and, and going back to the very basics in training and life that form what makes a good triathlete a good triathlete. Do you think that's a pretty fair summation of you as a coach, Brett? I think it's a totally fair summation. But I'll point out this to you to give you a bit of history because, as you said, I've been around a long, long time. And so I've been influenced by a lot of people that people have forgotten who were great coaches in their time. And um, I still remember I was like everybody else, you know, when I started coaching and I coached when I was very young. So uh, it might be a great advantage. In my life, it become a disadvantage in some ways, but see, I was coaching at 12. Uh, I had my own team of swimming when I was 15. Um, and I remember I was young and dumb and, as they say, full of cum and I wanted to be a great coach, you know, and I was so ripped up. And I remember I was in my first national team at 18 in 1978. So that's most likely before anybody that's listening to you were born. <laughs> True. And uh, I had my first people in the national team, which happened to be my brother, who then went on and was a three-time Olympian coach himself. Um, my father was a coach. My mother was a coach. So basically I lived on a swim, bed, swim deck. And I remember when I was young I was, I was coaching and I thought I knew everything. And an old guy by the name of Joe King, so some of your Queenslanders might remember old Joe. 
He was a national coach and an icon. We called him Mr. King because he was about 85 back in those days. And one day I was on the national team and I was so proud. I'm standing there next to these guys and Joe wandered up to me in his old way with his, you know, his limp and his walking stick and he said, you know, son, he said, you think you know a lot about coaching? And uh, I said, yes. And he said, well, can I give you a tip? And I, you know, I looked at him and thought, you know, you're old hat and like people look at me, you know. And he said, son, he said, the good coaches like to tell everybody and show everybody what they do know. He said, the great coaches don't need to do that. They say little, they have massive effect. And he said, uh, if you want to go to the next level, you must understand that, you know, it's not about how much you know, it's about how much you impart. And I look upon that as one of the uh, one of the many great sort of changes in my attitude. And then you get the situation now where people say he doesn't communicate. You know, they see me train. That everybody thinks, you know, they he's a rah, 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 attack, attack, attack. And, you know, I suppose the best thing Nicola wrote in the magazine a couple of years ago, they said, the communication is unbelievable. That's why we get on so well. And they said, but you just don't talk. And she said, you don't have to talk to communicate. And uh, I think that basically sums it up. And, and uh, I've had many coaches over the years. Don Talbot uh, gave me some fantastic advice when I was very young that I took to heart. Um and, you know, the list goes on. Bill Sweetnam, when I was young, I was a member of his Australian team as a coach and just picked up little things along the way. And, and, and when you piece them all together, I just brought them into triathlon. And because triathlon back in those days was a new sport, nobody knew anything about triathlon. So they would copy the best swimmers and the best swim techniques. What training do they do? Oh, this is what they do. And then they go over and they look at the bike and, this is what they do on the bike. So this is what the cyclists do, Tour de France. Everybody watches it, you know. Well, okay, so we'll follow that and then we'll we'll do the running, you know. And what we'll do is we'll, we'll look at Gabla Selassie and all the best runners and see what they do and then we'll just jam it all together and then we've got a triathlete. And that's their biggest mistake and that's my biggest advantage. We don't do that. And so something I'm really interested in and want to sort of delve deep on is um, is what you've done with like specific athletes, because like I've already mentioned and, and like you've mentioned, you've had some of the best athletes of all time. Um, and so I am curious about what you sort of do uh, with each athlete specifically and, and then what you do as like sort of non-negotiables with all of them. Um, maybe starting with, with Daniela Reef because you, you mentioned it before and, I, and I've been curious since you said it is that um, she, when she started working with you, was was doing less volume than, than anyone else that she was competing against and um, over your journey working with her, she went on to probably, in my opinion, uh, I'm not sure if you agree with this, have the, the most dominant patch of, of triathlon that that any athlete has ever had. Um, so what specifically were you and Danny doing together? Well, that's interesting because Danny's had a number of coaches that I had contact with. So, you know, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Craig Walton, trained her for a little while, and so obviously I was always in contact with Craig, being an ex-athlete of mine, and then she was with Darren Smith. And what people might not realise is Dr Darren, when we started out, was uh, when I was the national coach of Australian triathlon back in the 90s. Darren, we brought Darren on as a rookie uh, sports scientist. So I've known Darren all those years and, and he's always been somebody that was uh, an athlete coach first. And, and so when I started with uh, Danny, I rang him up and said, we call her the bird, the angry bird, which is another story. And, and we said, uh, I said, uh, you know, can you fill me in? And uh, he was living about six hours away from where I was. And without a hesitation of a doubt, he said, let's meet. And we did. We, I still remember we went and had a pizza somewhere. And he gave me three hours of the best insight into Danny. So I didn't have to have 18 months to understand the way she thought. Of course, as, an, as a competitor to Nicola, I watched it all the time in races. So, you know, I was able to draw a conclusion from her before she even hit the deck. And as you know, in your homework, I'm known as a rather strong coach, personality-wise. 
And Danny needed a strong coach personality-wise. And so we sort of clicked. Um, the thing with Danny is, and again, you've got me in a reflective period of my time. As I said, I'm changing my direction as a coach at the very moment to try to pass on some of these knowledge to some of the young kids. Um, so I've done a lot of reflecting over since the Olympics. I always did that after every year. We'd sit down, what could I do better? What did we do that we didn't do well was always my first question. Every season I sit down, and every season I, I wrote an internal uh, coaching manual. I think I've read it more than anybody else, which makes me sad. Um, but every year I go through and read the book again and, and basically refresh myself. But if we're going a bit left field, I also coached uh, horses and greyhounds, which in Australia you'll understand what I mean there. And so they're two entirely different things. And, and the first thing you learn when you're, you're training horses or dogs that they're bred to be different. And so a distance horse is different to a speed horse, yet they train them nearly the same. There's very little difference in the training. But one horse naturally gets the distance and the other horse doesn't. And uh, even more so with greyhounds because they're 80% fast with fibres. So it doesn't matter how much training you give a sprint greyhound, they're never going to go for the distance, you know. And, and uh, so basically I was fully aware when I look at athletes is uh, do they naturally stay? So when I'm looking at a, a short course athlete or whatever, I'm saying to myself, do they have the natural attributes to, to go along? Um, just the same as other athletes like Greg Bennett, and uh, who was fantastic, Loretta Harrop, which we haven't mentioned, who's most likely my greatest inspiration of somebody that took something that they didn't have and made themselves a super champ. Um, I never sent them long. They never did a half Ironman when I trained them because I thought they were sprinters. I knew Loretta Harrop since she was eight. So when I used to be a swim coach, so that's why she had respect for me. I, I knew that uh, Craig Walton was another one that uh, come from a swim background and knew me as a swim coach. And I knew that um, even in swimming, Loretta struggled over 200 metres. So it sounds a bit weird when you're doing a two-hour race, but she was much better at 100 butterfly than she was at 200 butterfly. And um, so I, I could see the trait. So at no stage did I try to stretch them up because I didn't think they could do it. Whereas I could look at a Danny and I just thought she was playing in the wrong sandpit the whole time. You know, I thought this girl is just born to go long. She's a long distance athlete. She's a, she's a diesel. And if I change a few things, which we did, we changed the swim stroke. We, we, we changed it to a two beat swimmer. So she didn't use her legs anywhere near as much as she used to. We, we got a more upright on the run and got a more uh, flat-footed, if you want to call that, or mid-foot, so all, this, all the geniuses you got listening to you don't go berserk. So we, we pushed her back to be more off the ball of the feet, to be more upright, distribute her weight uh, better over, the, over her hips so she could, she could handle going, you know, 42 kilometres. And uh, she took to it like a duck out of water. Um, it was just boom, you know, is this is what I'm good at. So do I need to send her on six and a half hour rides? No. Does she need to run 35K twice a day, you know, and this crazy stuff twice a week, so I should say, sorry? Um, no, because I, I knew in my own uh, inherent instinct that I thought she'll get the distance. The timing's not the problem. So... That's why she always did less. And uh, Chrissy Wellington was another one. Um, it was just exactly the same. You know, I was able to look at Chrissy and, you know, say, well, you need to do this amount. And then I had others that used to do a lot more work than them because they weren't natural stayers, if we can use the horse parlance. They had to be made and trained as Bart Cummings say, you've got to train them to go to two mile. And, uh uh, so, you know, that's where we used to diversify in the, in the uh, evaluation of certain athletes. And it was, my, uh, it was my instinct that said Danny can go along. I believe it. I train her for it. And, uh, well, you've seen the outcome. And, yes, you're quite right. There's never been a person who has the ability that Danny has. I'm just sorry for Danny that uh, the COVID and stuff uh, – has basically stopped a certain amount of legacy and people forget very quickly. But 
I've got no doubt that she's a, she was the dominant female in Ironman uh, in this day and age, and, and at some stage hit uh, performance levels that you know nobody else could do. And uh, so that's um, that's the way she was. And, you know, another we go back to short course. I remember with uh, Emma Snowsill, and I'm sure she won't mind me saying it. She drove my squad mad because Emma, when she started with me, was you know not the super champ everybody. Knows and respects, and um, after three months, I provided her with. I still think it was a, I can't think of the brand, but a Cronus watch that went ep 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 ep, and we set it to uh, a cadence because she was a very small girl with a very long technical run stride. It was very long, very lack of cadence, and it was just in my mind that uh, she wasn't efficient like that, and so used to drive all the people in the squad mad when they go on a long run with her, that she'd have this watch going off and we were just subliminally teaching her, you know, the same as a piano player gets taught uh, with uh, that little thing they sit on the piano that goes tick, tock, tick, tock, tick to teach her the rhythm. And so she would have her watch. I'd have all the guys complaining and I had to have the guys because after six months she was spanking all the girls so she used to train with the guys and, you know, after a long run, they uh, they could hardly hang on to her. And all we did was we adjusted her technique. So she went from maybe, I don't know, I forget it was so long ago, but maybe from 86 or 88 cadence to she'd run the 10K at 100 cadence. And she went from a good average under 23 girl, I suppose, to uh, – absolute world beater and at, at a top nobody's ever ran or did triathlon as well as she did in the Olympic distance and I'm lucky enough to have Nicola you know that's been the benchmark for us that Nicola over those all those years was to try to get to the level of uh, Emma Snowson and uh, you know I believe she did and, and so you know I have the advantage in that area of having that history that we can look at certain athletes and say okay uh, you know, without Chrissy Wellington, there'd be no Danny Riff. Without, and in the between, I want to point out because she was robbed twice, and you can don't cut that out. Uh, at the uh, at Kona, Carolyn Stefan should have won two Konas, except for referees with no brains and no judgment. And, uh, she's the only person I know twice that's got pinged for drafting, leading the women's race by two minutes. Um, and then got a four-minute penalty. And then, of course, as the girls all went past her, uh, got back on the bike and got to the front again and then got another four-minute penalty after she gave the girls, you know, four minutes and caught them up again. But then she's the one drafting. So I want to put her in there because she's another one that was at that level. You know, she was fantastic. And uh, unfortunately, uh, she never got the, you know, the kudos she deserved, but she was without... Chrissy Wellington, there would have been no Carolyn Stefan. Without Carolyn Stefan, there would have been no Danny Riff because, you know, I learned from those people and I incorporated the next one. And without Loretta Harrop, there would have been no Emma Snowsill, Siri Lindley, um, and then we moved into the Nicola Spirig era. And, um, you know, and Nicola had, from an athletic point of view, had uh, Emma Snowsill to look up to and chase. And then from a mental point of view, I just kept using Loretta Harrop ad nauseum when she thought she's doing enough. I said, you know, you're nowhere near Loretta at the present moment. And um, so, you know, we use those type of, th that's my science. And it's uh, stood me well over the years. It's actually insane how many like good people you've had underneath you in, in sort of preparation for this episode, because um, this is one I've, I've been really looking forward to because of, of who you are in the sport that I love. Um, I was talking to someone else who, whose opinion I respect in the sport. And I said, in your opinion, who are the, who are the four greatest female triathletes of all time? Um, and he sort of landed on uh, Daniela Reef, Emma Snowsell, Nicola Spirig and Gwen Jorgensen. And I said, who's, who's the fifth? And he said, probably Chrissy Wellington. Um, and I, I agree with him um, in, in those five, and and four out of those five are, are athletes that that were coached by you, which is just something that no other coach, really in any sport, ever can say. Like how many how many 
coaches have had four of the five greatest of all time. It's it's actually quite insane. And and hearing you talk about that and uh, and comparing them to each other and and just sort of realizing that that they are all people that that in in large part owe their success to to you in a way um, is 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 literally insane. What I can do there is clarify one thing because you you'll hear also they say oh he's so arrogant and he you know. I used to be a professional gambler, so I look at a form guide really well, and that also helps. Um, I look at the strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, you got four out of the five right, but see, uh, Gwen Jorgensen's not a triathlete. She's a wet runner. And the way the sport's been developed and butchered and I'd say prostituted over the time, and that's why I've dropped out of it now and just going to help these kids get to their dreams because the ridiculousness of the ITU now is, 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 is to the stage where it's not testing the triathlete. Um, and you can, uh, so basically, uh, I'll tell you now, I, I could take Danny in the middle of an Ironman training and say to Gwen, and I'm happy to back it up with my own money, and I did. Uh, okay, forget about racing Nicola, race Danny over a sprint distance. And if they were two out, Danny would hand her her run shoes. And that's what people don't understand, and that's what makes me sad and bitter about the sport, that I'm so glad that Alistair Brownlee has done such a magnificent job and Nicola because, see, that's why they're making all the races shorter because all the old guys are still better than all the short guys because of the training and the coaching and the way that, you know, they shorten the race up, you know, so we're going to make it shorter, shorter. And now we've got the relay, which is the biggest joke of all time, for anybody that understands the sport. But anyway, this is the new thing. And all the federations now, I just fell out with the Swiss Federation. We're going to be a relay nation. It has absolutely nothing to do with the swimming and the biking and the running. And so, you know, I'm not knocking anybody. Gwen's wonderful. That's great for everybody that wants to go down that line. But uh, the fact of the matter is, mate, she doesn't rate my top 10 triathletes, if you want to say triathletes. And the way I look at triathletes is, okay, you go over there, you swim by yourself, you run by yourself, you bike by yourself, and let's have a look at how fast you are. That's, and that's been my kudos. And anybody that comes into my squad that have sort of traits, I say, well, I'm not interested in training you unless you want to become a full triathlete because that's my purity, if you understand what I mean, and that's what I've kept always. If you go back and look at through all those people, um, I can tell you now, Emma Snowsill would have been fantastic at Ironman, absolutely fantastic. Um, she could do it all, and that's what we trained for. When she came in, she couldn't do nothing. Uh, you know, it's all sprint distance race. People don't realise it. I'll give you a bit of history. Emma Snowsill's first paycheck ever was in a race that was 4K, 120 and 30. And it was in Ibiza, if you want to look it up. She got third. Um, because, and then she had the background. And that's why people like Nicola are still, believe me, don't take, uh, don't take Tokyo. You take the three motorbikes that helped the, the first five. She was all over them like a rash by halfway on the bike. Changes the whole race. But this is how the silliness has got to sport at the present moment that, you know, I and I just got to the stage where I'm too old, too cranky to put up with that shit. So you know, I just look after the ones that are with me. I don't know anybody outside my squad basically anymore. I concentrate on trying to improve the people that's in front of me, and that's what most coaches don't do. And they don't concentrate on what's in front of them, and they don't look through that. You know, they and they don't have intuition anymore. You know, back in my day when I can talk to coaches, back to Dickie Kane in Australia and, as I said, Talbot, I stood on deck with Forbes Carlisle, they had intuition. Yes, they had science, but they also used to use their judgment. And now our judgment is a lactate test, a heart rate monitor, because coaches can't do their job. And, uh, you know, so they use these things, which... People tell me it's very scientific. I laugh at that, Jack. They're not scientific. It's so imperfect. You know, we're going to do the test today. Okay, beautiful. Let's do the tests. What happens if the room's two degrees warmer than it was the time you did the last test? What happens if the humidity in the room is 5% higher than when you did the last test? I just find it laughable to someone like me 
to understand, you know, and that they don't realise that, you know, they're working off the geology. All the training and all the coaching, I can tell you coaches out there, is based on the perfect athlete, the perfect person with genealogy. And it's getting more and more, and that's why they want to shorten the races up because the scientists love the fact this guy's got a better genealogy than the other guy. Well, I didn't like that. I like the workers. I like the ones that didn't have the 85 VO2 max, the ones that's got 72 but have got a great big work ethic and got a great big capacity for putting up with pain under pressure. You know, those people are being weeded out. So we'll get down to the race that in the end those things are taken out. So, you know, oh, you've just got better genes than everybody else, so we make the race short enough so you're great. It's, it's like in triathlon now, the relay, it's, it's down to like a 100-metre sprinter. Um, so, you know, that's that's where I come from. And I and I won't, at this stage of the game, change around. I had two kids that we we brought up over the last four years that, you know, I, I just was supposed to retire with Nicola in 212. She made the comeback. Yes, I'll keep. I'll train you. And then the next thing you know, she brought Danny in and said, "I'd like you to help her." Um, and then it just it snowballed from there. And so we took two kids in that Rito Hook, who's uh, Nicholas Spiri's husband, fantastic athlete himself, been at three or four Olympics, won world medals twice, I think at least twice, European champion. So fantastic athlete. He brought in Max Studer. And asked me to uh, basically see what we could do with him because he thought he was a better athlete than he, he was performing. And um, Nicola brought in Julie Darren, a junior from Switzerland. And so that's why I haven't up until this year had any international people. We were just dealing with the locals. And uh, Max went to the Olympics, got ninth, not a bad effort. And uh, Julie won the European Championships last year in the seniors. Um, they were just following the same protocols as what we've used over the last 25 years. Um, so I get, I get a, you know, and then Julie went on and won two half Ironmans after she missed the Olympics because of selection dilemmas. So I, um, I just stick to what I know works. You know, I'm not a what's right and what's wrong guy. I'm a what works guy and what doesn't work. And that goes right down to the individual. And if coaches could get their head around that and then develop their skills so they can make intuition, intuition decisions, they'll be so, I'm so far ahead of the lactate test, it's not funny. And they don't get that, you know. They think, oh, he's doing it blind. No, they're doing it blind. You know, you've been into sport. Go down and people will give you zones, okay, Jack? So what's the zone? Oh, it's between... Your zone three is between 140 and 150 after getting tested and spend $250 on getting your test. Oh, okay. What's my zone four? Oh, well, that's 150 to one, in your case, 158. That's a 3% threshold of mistake, if you understand what I mean. It's just so off the charts, non-scientific, but... All the coaches, I get them, I get them under me when I'm trying to teach them, and they say, but, Brett, you don't understand. I say, no, you don't understand. You're using inexact science on a fallible human being that their mental condition, their way they think has got so much more control over their body than any scientific notation you're going to tell me. So I don't care how good they are at this level. Oh, he's got an 86 VO2 max, wonderful. I've seen many 86 go to a final and run 35th. Why has that happened? Perfectly produced, trained to the minute. Well, that's where my other skill comes in. I used to be a professional boxer. And I know they've put down the same to uh, Mike Tyson, but it's not Mike Tyson. He got it off another old champion and said, everybody's got a plan to they're smashed in the face. And then it's about who can survive the critical minutes. And so when I bring that to triathlon, I'm a monster. <laughs> but that's what it's all about. You know, Nicholas gold medals hanging around her neck when a girl was going to go past the 500 metres out. 
She didn't get past her. How did that happen? I'm going to tell you. She wouldn't have got past her if they did four laps because we worked every day on the mental aspect of how to handle the pressure, how to handle the pain. That's where I play. That's my game. And that's what I get across to people. And some people can't handle that. And they shouldn't be doing professional sport. They should be doing it for fun and whatever. But when you get at the top level, one thing boxing teaches you, you can be number two in the world. When they carry you out on a stretcher, you lose. <laughs> so the champ knocked you out. Yes, you're still number two, but you got beat. Now, I bring that sort of intensity to my athletes, and then I'm a coaching monster. It is funny how you sort of get talked about in that way as like a really hard man and 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 almost shot down by people who have opposing views to you because like talking to you and, and from what I've read and, and heard from you in the past and, and heard other people say about you is uh, I just think you come across as really real and uh, direct and you know what works and you're not afraid to tell people what works. Um and I guess on the, the other side, you're not afraid to, afraid to tell people what doesn't work. Uh, and, and it is funny how you can get villainized for that a little bit when, I mean, at the heart of it, it all, it's all pretty reasonable and, and rational and logical thinking on your part. Well, I hope you think that because that's basically you just summed it up in two sentences, the, the whole ethos of my training. You know, I, I was one of those kids that didn't go to university. So, you know, I can be in a room with 45 people and have been in coaching lectures. And I think I'm the only one that's right and everybody else thinks I'm wrong. Well, it's never affected me to say these are all dopes. It's just not been something I've had a problem with. And, and that's why to this day, the, the uh, what do we call it, the rocks and arrows, sticks and stones, you know, maybe I don't fit into this era at the present moment, but never bothered me, you know. I'd never argue anything if I knew it was 90, if I thought I was 95% right, I never argued. I never tell anybody that's right for you because what's right for you this year might not be right for next year. Like I got athletes turning up and they want to taper and they said, well, this is what I did before this race and I won this race. So but I said, this that's past, you know, it's, what we're doing now is a bit different. So you might have to do the taper a little different. And I think that's why we've had such success in uh in the big races. If you go back and through look through the big races, we're a big race team, or we have been, you know. And it's the reason why is because we concentrate on what's important under pressure. You know, I I learned from a guy once at a lecture that, you know, 30, 20 years ago, and he said tough, you know. Well, I know tough because I've been with a lot of tough guys in my career. And he said tough is technique under fatigue. And I think that sums it up, you know. That's what that's tough how you can hold yourself together when everything else has fallen apart. And so if people tell me, you know, I spend too much time on that aspect of the sport, I know just reflecting three days ago with these new kids, you know, I've got 17-year-olds and whatever, and I just I just said with Nicola because she's like the matron of the old team and been around like an old sock, you know, and I just said, I've got to go back and start afresh with these kids because I'm not teaching them the stuff that I started to teach, but it's been doing it for so many years now. And she's still the one that sits there like all the old bitten pros. When I start talking to the kids, they all disappear, uh, you know, because they've heard the stories, you know, 20 times, Jack. You know, they've heard the same story, the same. But there's one person sitting in the room, and it's funny, there's usually two, but he lives in Brazil, but when he's there, he comes in and they sit there and I, I said to them, like not just two months ago when we had the inaugural camp for the, uh, for the foundation, I said, what are you doing listening? And they said, I think that's what made me better. I, it just the stories, they still resonate today. And don't stop doing it because I said to them, you know, I can't keep going back to start a scratch again. And they said, that's the secret. You've got to get these kids understanding what winning and losing is about. You've got to get these kids understanding what work is because nobody in today's society understands it. They think they're going to take a pill or they think they're going to take a test and then it's going to make them good, you know. And 
So, you know, the two old war horses basically who are at the end of their career keep pushing me forward, you know. And so, um, yeah, it sounds like a bit of drivel, but, you know, it's the essence of coaching. And that's what you rang me for, I thought. But, you know, you want a coaching, you know, side of the sport that you're not going to hear anymore. And you're not, you know. Oh, this kid's no good. Uh, you know, I remember Loretta Harrop, if you, if you don't mind me taking your time, because we had a we had a high-performance manager that was a, a, a tough guy and an old good guy, and, but he had, three, uh, he had three degrees, so it was a nice foil for me. And I remember when they were both juniors in the Australian squad, uh, I said, I want Loretta Harrop to come to this camp. And he said, Loretta Harrop's got the worst scores of any of the 20 juniors. I don't care. I want her. And he said, we can't put her in. And I said, I want that girl too. It was Joanne King at the time. He said, Joanne King can't even swim out the side of the pool. I said, I said, I want them in the in the camp. I want to take them to Germany. And because he was old school too, Robbie Pickard, who, you know, it's no coincidence Australian triathlon's gone out the window since he disappeared out of the place. Um, he said, I'll get him there. And do you know what happened, Jack? Loretta Harrop went to the camp in Germany as a motel room, okay, that was extra booked, and Joanne Kim was a hire car. He found the money and he made them come. Guess what they both ended up? World champions. What about the other 15 in front of them? No. But I've seen there's more quality than just can you swim, can you bike. Loretta couldn't run. Loretta's first World Cup's around 52 minutes. Go back and check that out, how slow that is. Okay, and we got all sorts of troubles over that, me and him, because they said, what, what have you got this girl here for? And, and Joanne King couldn't swim eight fifties on a minute when she started. Both become world champions because what they had in their heart and what they had in their head. Well, how do you measure that? How do you measure Nicola Spiri been doing this since she was 12? She's 40. And she'd now kick anybody's ass in a two-hour race over nearly any distance except for Danny. Um, do you see what I'm saying? That type of quality is not measurable. So we get people like this every day in all these federations and they're just thrown on the scrap heap because they don't have a high enough VO2 max. In some areas, you wouldn't believe it, they're not flexible enough. Give me a break. You know what I mean? But they've got a heart of a lion. They want to work. I'll do it. I've got to do extra because I'm not that talented. Yeah. Okay. They wanted to now, sorry, can't make the relay, 200 swim. What is it? 8K bike, 3K run. No, it's not 3K run. What is it? Some ridiculous distance of 1,500 or 1,600. And then people say to me, well, you're just not getting on board. <laughs> getting on board on what? You know, you've taken the humanity out of the sport. You used to be, have to be a tough guy to be a triathlete. It's one of the things I swatched from swimming. I watched a couple of my age groupers in the squad that I used to train, and I thought, God, that's hard. God, you've got to have some discipline for that. Well, the ITU seems to be on a headlong thing to get rid of all that, you know, and make it where we got control of everything. We get to select the people. We get to do the tests. And um, I just find it, you know, disrespectful to sport in itself. And uh, as we're finding as we hurtle into the craziness, you know, I said to Nicola, I said, well, you know, the way things are going at the present moment, you may as well retire now because you'll be racing three men in four years' time. But let's not get into that because I don't want to upset your program. But it just drives me insane. It's quite sort of motivational in a way, though, hearing you speak because you are, you are telling people, hey, you don't have to be the most talented swimmer, biker, runner to be a good triathlete. And, and I think triathlon does attract people who like to work hard and, and you know, they might see Kona or or, or they see people going for long rides or, or whatever they whatever that it is that motivates them and and they get into the sport because they want to train hard and they they want to you know uh, become a better version of themselves and, and and I guess sometimes with sport you can 
almost not want to do it because you don't see yourself as the most talented person in the room or you see someone who who looks you know you you go to a triathlon and you, and you see all these people who look super fit and and they and they get intimidated by it but but you're you're basically reaffirming that none of that really matters and what does matter is that hey do you want to work hard how tough are you when the going gets tough um, and and how much do you want to make of yourself as an athlete which it is it is really motivational to hear well, I think I just, you know, without giving the game away, I just talked to someone very high up in the administration of one of our one of our race type things, and I and he said something to me, and I said, "You don't understand yet, and the people around you don't understand. But triathlon is an age group sport with pros. That's what I got into it for, because I was actually a national coach and swimming, and I was this and that." And my assistant coach, who used to take the triathletes and, and the, the age groupers in the swimming in the other pool, disappeared on me. That's a long story, so I won't tell you it, but it's one we'll talk about another time if you want. But he disappeared and he was supposed to go away for two weeks and he ended up going away for six months. And so I took these people and I thought every one of them are improving themselves. It just it, it recalibrated my thought about triathlon. Because I was like everybody else, all these wankers, you know, they can't swim, they wear spandex. But getting into the belly of the beast, if I can say that, and then I started going running with the age groupers at 7 o'clock at night after the swim set. And I could see it transforming people and it really interested me. And and I, I thought it was something I was only dealing with the elite of the elite, you know, in the swimming at that stage. And... and uh, it's the same now. I would have to say to you, Jack, that Fredino and Danny took it to the stage now that you have to be a good swimmer. You have to be a you know, great black body. You have to be a great runner. But up until then, you could have had a bit of a weakness. That's changed now that you really do need to have the whole gamut. And, and that's what's changed at the very top level. But as you say, you can be a 13-hour triathlete, and I hate to use those numbers, but to give you just the viewers a base of, I'm saying someone that's pretty damn slow. You can use triathlon to improve your life and your health and, you know, an advocate for your kids for exercise. That's what gets me about the sport. It's wonderful, and people shouldn't lose sight of that, you know, and the and I think they do. And, you know, I was about to write a blog yesterday and I was depressed because, you know, I've got people in my own squad, age groupers. Huh? We need goals. We need stepping stones. We need, you know, motivation. I said, they don't need any of that because they can't train every day for 30 minutes because, oh, I've got this, I've got to cook dinner tonight, I've got to do this, do something. They haven't organised their life, but the triathlon is making their life better. They're too busy worrying. You know, you've got all these maniac age groupers. I want to win my age group. You know what I mean? Like, okay. And then what do you do? And then when they don't win their age group, they retire, put on 20 kilo. It's, you know, I love the sport because I think it's the most rounded sport. You know, if you're just a runner, you run, 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 run. You're just a bike rider. You bike, 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 bike. You know what I mean? Triathlon gives you a complete upper body, you know, legs, cardio. It's it's most likely if we didn't, we had more places to ride that's safe. It's most likely the best all round sport for an average person to have a well rounded exercise regime. There's no better sport. That's what I believe, you know, and uh, so that's why I get a little bit down in the uh, the weeds in that area, but. You know, when we come back to our training, you know, I got age groupers and all our training is based off our pros. So basically, yes, they do less. Yes, they do uh, not as fast, but they've still got two arms and two legs. So, you know, we don't, and that's why we have, since we started doing age groupers, we've had fantastic results with age groupers. Because I said the same principles adhere to you is what Nicholas Spirit does. Now, I got a, I got a lady today that, you know, runs two hours for a half marathon. Uh, but she still did the, the session Nicola did, only less and slower. Um, 
because it's, it doesn't change. This coach, I'm an age group coach. I'm not a pro coach, you know. I'm not, well, I mustn't be a pro coach. I'm an age group coach. I just happen to have fastest pros in the world. And, you know, I suppose I'm proving myself again now that all the pros are not there anymore. I'm going to start again with a French bunch of kids. You wait and see. Three years' time, you'll be going, uh-oh, we better interview Brett again. Here's this kid from Greece. Here's this kid from Brazil. Here's this kid from, you know, Hungary. What have they all got in common? Well, they've all rose to the top, and they'll be following the same principles. We did it the same thing uh, that we used to do. We've changed a little bit since 1990. Not a lot, a little bit. Okay, I can tell you a story about one of the coaches that I that comes to my pool training another national team. It was quite funny because uh, he was in the group in 1990 and he was watching Nicola go up and down the pool and she was hurting and he was watching and, you know, we're good friends and he couldn't help himself. He'd come from the other end of the pool and he went up and he said, can I ask you, is this the set you're doing? Bat, 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 you know, and he rattled off the set. And she turned around to him, heaving, and said, yep, how did you know that? And he said, well, I did that in 1990. And shook his head and walked down and then yelled out to me. He said, Christ, he said, you've never changed. I said, learn this coaching lesson. It worked for you, it works for her. It doesn't matter what the date is. And I think that's about the best way to sum it up, you know. So, you know, if it works, it works. It doesn't get old. And something else I, um, I've been told about you, and, and I'm not sure if it's true, so I want to ask, is that, that you're sort of known for, for like doing massive training days very rarely, but that are, that are crazy almost, you know, and it's a word that, that you've said that, that people often uh, associate with you, um, but you'll, you know, for whatever reason, you'll set someone a, a, a day that might be, I don't know what it is, eight hours long and it might be really hard and and it's really just to, to try and make that person tougher. Like, A, is that true? And, and then B, if it is, what have you done over time? Like, what have those sessions looked like and, and who have you done them with and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, well, I don't back away from that because we call that what Percy Serrati used to call it. If you remember Percy Serrati, back through your history book, one of Australia's greatest ever athletic coaches, uh, he used to call it willpower training, and I know because I had a couple of. Uh, so see, I'm deflecting now because you know you get all the maniacs, and the people wouldn't know this. You, uh, Percy Cerruti used to train the great Herb Elliott. Herb Elliott was Olympic gold medalist in the 1500 and was never beaten, never beaten, in uh, on the track in the 1500, and. Uh, when I was talking to Herb, so I can drop, I'll drop name drop, I was talking to Herb back in 1998. And I remember him saying to me, you know, when I asked him what session did he like best, he said, well, there's two I liked and there's one I hated. But he said, I think it was the best thing I, could, I ever did. It. Percy made me do the bastard. And I said, okay, what's that? And he said, well, I used to like doing the, the uh 16, I see I'll drop us some names here, but 16 200s with the sprinters at uh, Melbourne Stadium. And he said, we used to go 200 hard and 600 jog. And he said, I love that set of a Tuesday night. And he said, I love doing the tan set, which, again, the Melbourneites will know exactly what I'm talking about. So we used to do laps of the tan, and we used to do three laps of the tan, and we'd build it up. And uh, I find it quite funny when I say that now because it's more reflection again because we do moderate, medium, mad. And he said, yes, we used to do three laps of the 10. Everybody started together and then we just build it, build it, build it. And then by the time we hit the last lap, it was every man for himself. And I said, that's good. And he said, but the one I hated, he said, when of a Friday after I finished work, Percy Sundays used to make me run to Portsea. And I shook my head and I thought I misunderstood it. I thought I didn't hear it. I said, uh, I, what do you mean run the portsy? He said, Percy used to make me run the portsy. And I said, how can you run the portsy? I said, I said they'd pick you up in the car and drop you off on the way. He said, no, the bastard used to make me run the portsy. And he said, I said, how far is that? He said, 60 kilometres. And he said, that's the 1,500-metre runner, not a marathoner. And he said, when I used to get there, Percy said, it'll make you a better person. 
And so, you know, I have no uh, no regrets about doing some things like that with some people. I, I give them, um, she can confirm it, um, Belinda Granger, I give her 65 kilometres one time in the heat, about 100 degrees in Thailand. She was there with another American girl that we, we trained and they ran it. And she won three Ironman after she did that race or did that training. I said, you've got, yeah, because she was a bad runner and everybody kept running over it, kept running over it, kept running over it. And one day I said, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to wait till it gets hot. We didn't do it at four in the morning. I said, now it's 11 o'clock. What, what temperature is it? It's 100, about 88 humidity. And I said, we're going to run till we've got to stop or I call stop. And they did it, and they ran, and they ran, and we had all the kids there on the on the bus, all the people in the squad in Thailand at that stage. And she just showed everybody. She got such respect, mate, for this group because everybody thought this is insane, and everybody thought she was a shit runner, and uh, no had no respect for her whatsoever. So we kept going, and she kept going for about four and a half hours. That's actually crazy. Yeah, and at the end of it. She come up and said, "I'm so glad I did that. I feel show these people that I've got quality too, you know." Because she was with a lot of people. Nicola was there, um, Chrissy Wellington was there, and I never made them do it. And the other girl that she did it with, uh, I can't think of her name. I, I know her name, but some tip of my tongue. But but anyway, they both were known as poor runners. And they both went on to win Ironman races by outrunning good runners because it just broke through their mental thing. I could get into them at the last 10K. They're as good as anybody. When when everything's collapsed around them, they can hang on. They're tough. And so, okay, so that was a crazy run or was it a, a great coaching effort? You know, things like that. Uh, we've done that on a number of people, but you've got to pick the right athlete. I never give Danny any crazy stuff because she's a thoroughbred. You know, there's no reason for her to do crazy, you know, because she's strong under pressure. She's strong in the mind. She's a great athlete, you know. But I'll give you another little tale tale because Nicola used to worry me before 2.12, and that's when I knew she was going to beat the Australian in 2.12. We went to the race in the Lulabar. She did 32-200s the morning of the World Series race, which was her qualifying. And she was very upset about it, of course, because she said, if I don't get top eight, I won't be able to go to the Olympics. I said, if you can't do this and get top eight, you're not going to get the podium anyway, so why go to the Olympics? You've already been there twice. And anyway, so she got to the thing and the girl that ran third in the Olympics that year was winning everything, smashing everybody. And she ran out with her on the back of her. And so the girl was flying. Nicola was hanging on for dear life. And, um, you know, she was struggling, but she was hanging. But I knew the other girl was going to beat her. And I just said to her, I said, drop back and practice your sprint finish for the Olympics. And she looked and said, I think I can just hang on. I said, forget about it. Drop back. And she did. She dropped back into the other group then. And the other girl went on and won by a minute and a half or whatever it was. And Nicola, uh, you know, Emma Snowsill and me went down to watch the sprint finish and I didn't even get down, didn't go down there. And Emma said, come on, let's run down there. I said, no need. She said, well, don't you want to see the finish? I said, I know what's going to happen in the finish. It's no problem. And, you know, Nicola won the sprint finish and then she qualified for the Olympics. And um, I knew then that, you know, the toughness to be able to come off the mental side of that session still doing a world series race still be competitive still sprint the other girls well you know very hard to beat and uh was shown that way when she broke everybody one at a time if you remember the race it was five of five she was sick the two days beforehand the doctor didn't even think she could start but she ground them into the dirt it was one of the proudest moments as a coach that uh you know, when a plan comes together, it's wonderful. But uh, she wasn't at her best that day and she just ground them into the dirt and then had to put up with the, the last burst from the other girl and from Sweden that she wouldn't let her get past. And I thought that summed up everything she did in the training the four years beforehand. 
So, yeah, there's crazy things like that. I'm not going to say that. Birthday session occasionally to a weak person, they go hundred hundreds um, in the pool. Well, I don't care how fast or slow they go, long as they do it. But, uh, again, that comes back from I learned something from Nick Boliteri, which has got nothing to do with triathlon but as a coach. And Nick Boliteri used to have a brick wall outside his office when they used to bring all the kids in to test them out about, um, you know, going, staying in his camp or whatever because it was very prodigious. they do all the tests and everything, but Nick never went to any of them. But Nick used to uh, be there in his office and then what he used to do is go out to the kids that they brought, well, we can take two of this eight. So he used to give them a tennis ball and say hit against the wall. And the guy would say, well, where? He said, just hit against that wall. And uh, they said, um, yeah, but for how long? He said, as long as you like. And then he'd go inside and he'd watch them from his office. And that's where he got two or three of his champions because he said all the others packed up and went home after an hour. Some would do two hours. And that guy that does a common eight in Melbourne, he said he was there for seven hours. I had to go out and say, okay, go back inside and have lunch or have dinner or whatever, you know. That was the story. He said, that was my talent ID. And he said, it stood me well. And so that's why I laugh at all these scientific rubbish stuff. They, they don't know. They don't understand, you know. And I've been across many sports, as you know, and um, I see the same traits in people that become successful in each of the sports. You know, it doesn't change. The sport changes, but the mentality doesn't. The winning doesn't. And they stand out, these type of people, you know, and and, then didn't matter whether it was boxing, didn't matter whether it was triathlon, whether it was running, whether it was swimming. Um, You know, they're the the traits I look for. I do that today with my guys, um, with these junior kids that come in. Go for a ride, do it as long as you like. Now I'm feeling a bit tired. I said, as short or as long, I don't care. And I'll have the kid that's done 30 minutes and I'll have the kid that's, done whatever, and then I have one maniac that's gone four and a half hours. Why'd you go four and a half hours? And they said, oh, because it got dark. I couldn't go any longer. So you can guarantee, look for a Greek kid because he's in my squad. <laughs> and uh, he's only 17, but I'll tell you now, you know, you can have a window to the way it works. I bet you one day he goes to the Olympics because he's got the stuff. And I've got the other stuff for him. I can make him a better swimmer. I can make him a better runner. I can make him a better bike rider. But he's got the stuff. Now, how you want to scientifically put that into a box, I don't know. I've got another one out of Hungary that will be exactly the same. He's only 16 or whatever. But you say, look for the Hungarian kid in two or three years' time and look for the Greek kid and you'll see where they are. They'll be, they'll be at the Olympics. Now, I'm, I'm 100% sure in it if, if, if everything goes to plan. So, you know, that's how I look at coaching and it's a little bit different than most people. So, you know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, Jack, and I just keep on doing it. And that's part one of my chat with legendary triathlon coach Brett Sutton. Hopefully you guys are loving listening to this chat as much as I loved having it. I loved it so much, in fact, that we ended up talking for over two hours and I figured that's definitely a two-parter. So part two is being released this Wednesday. I'll see you back here then. 